If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To support the show starting at just $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com slash support to learn more. This month, Green Dreamer is also sponsored by my favorite tea brand, Arbor Teas, and I'm so grateful for their support during this time. They source loose leaf and organic certified teas. They use backyard compostable packaging, which they've been doing for the past 10 years, by the way. Their operations run on solar energy, and all of their efforts are offset by carbon fiber. I myself only bought tea from Arbor Teas this past year. I love supporting them as a small family-owned business, and I also love gifting it to friends and family to support their well-being. To shop Arbor Teas organic teas, just head to arborteas.com. That's A-R-B-O-R-T-E-A-S dot com. Everyone's success is contingent on the success of the society in which they're embedded. This idea that we should only care about ourselves and not care about the fact that some people are having to work two jobs and have no spare time and can't spend time with their kids. I mean, I think there are issues of justice and equity and what kind of society we want to live in as well. That was Rebecca Henderson, an economist, a researcher, Harvard professor, and the author of the new book, Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. Since in the United States we're in the middle of our next presidential election cycle, and also with this pandemic that's going on, I feel like a lot more people are thinking critically about the role of the government, the role of the private sector, and so forth. And so people are talking about capitalism a lot more, and it also becomes really clear who are stubborn defenders of it and who believes that we need structural and systemic change. But what are the form of capitalism that we have today that the free market capitalists wholeheartedly defend isn't even the real deal? And it's not even the free market capitalism that its thought leaders had intended it to be. And what will it take for us to keep the individual freedom, opportunities, and abilities to realize our potentials that a lot of people believe capitalism enables while not having this 
go overboard in creating a hyper-individualistic, cutthroat society that fails to even have basic human decency in ensuring that people and our environments are not exploited nor disenfranchised for the name of monetary profit. We go over some of these things, as well as the role that purpose-driven businesses can play in helping us to address our varied crises, and so much more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. sort of tree-hugging side, very separate from my professional life. My professional life, I became a business school professor. I focused on questions of innovation in large firms. I was the Eastman Kodak professor at MIT, which was a coincidence, but that's what I did. I really was fascinated by how difficult it is for large organizations to change. And I really kept those two sides of myself separate. So... I had the good fortune to be able to go to the Cascades, for example, and walk in the amazing forests of the Pacific Northwest. And I went to California and I walked in the Redwood Forest north of San Francisco. And I went to Aspen. And I think like so many people who've had the good fortune to have that experience, when you walk through an Aspen grove in the mountains, your heart just just lights up with the sun that's dancing on the leaves of the aspen trees. But that was always what I did in my spare time. And my day job was working with large organizations talking about, look, there's a major challenge coming down the pike. Why can't you see it? What should you do about it? And so for a long time, I kept those two sides of myself really quite separate. Two things changed that. One was I saw Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth. And I can't tell you why, but it really struck me as, whoa, okay, this is really serious. And about the same time, my brother, who's a freelance environmental journalist, started giving me the science around global warming. And as I read the science, I became really distressed. My first thought was, okay, uh, what am I doing as a business school professor? I should just quit and be an activist and really try and drive public policy and public awareness in this space. But I had a few friends who were activists and they said, no, 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 wait, wait. You're at a business school. That's a place where you can really make a difference in this space. And so that's what I decided to do and to try and really unite these two sides of my life. Mm. So clearly the form of free market capitalism that we have today isn't working. It's been driving environmental degradation, public health has often been compromised due to corporate pollution, and social inequality is also on the rise. In reflection of our history, do you think free market capitalism set us up for failure at the outset, or where did things start to go wrong? Well, that's such a great question. So firstly... I don't think the capitalism we have is the real thing. <laughs> I don't think it really is free market capitalism in the sense of being the sort of ideal capitalist system. And let me tell you why, because 
in a real free market capitalism, prices would fully reflect the costs and benefits of the thing that they were attached to. So, you know, when you buy an apple for $2, it tells you something about how many apples there were, how hard they were to grow, how many people want to buy it. So I'm a huge fan of of using prices and having firms compete because that's great. I mean, if what you want is toothpaste, capitalism will get you toothpaste. But the thing is, everything has to have the right price. And when you're allowed to pollute without cost, when you can throw greenhouse gases out the window and throw your garbage into the river, that's not real free market capitalism. That's kind of a distorted form. And so for me, amongst the problems with our current system are that we're not charging the right price for the natural world. We're pretending that the atmosphere is free, that we can poison the ocean and it will have no consequence. So you can throw your garbage into the ocean and you don't have to pay a price for that. And so no wonder we've got capitalism, this incredibly efficient machine, turning out pollution like there's no tomorrow because there's no penalty. There's not been any constraint. And so for me, where things went off the rails is where we thought that somehow capitalism would self-regulate or we started running down government so that it wouldn't regulate or even worse, many firms spent hundreds of millions of dollars making sure we didn't pay the right price for fossil fuels. You know, fossil fuels kill millions of people every year and yet they're priced as if, hey, no problem. There's no downside from using this. Is, Is this too technical? No, it's great. It's it's, <laughs> okay. it's funny because I feel like a lot of people who are sort of defending the system that we have right now and saying we need to defend this free market capitalism, those are the very people benefiting from the current unlevel playing field. You know, if we exactly. think about all the subsidies that are going to fossil fuel, which is artificially cheapening transport and all the environmental costs of the global trade, all the subsidies and regulations that overwhelmingly benefit corporations with the most power to lobby furthermore for their own interests. So it's kind of like, do we really have a free market capitalism as it was intended? We absolutely do not. I mean, you're exactly right. Real free market capitalism, everyone is playing on a level playing field with rules that make sure that pollution is properly controlled or properly priced, that everyone gets a chance to play, and that the corporations themselves can't lobby to change the rules to their own benefit. And so the people who are standing up now and saying, oh, the system we have is great. No, it's not. Any system that is systematically poisoning the earth and is leaving hundreds of millions of people behind is not the best possible system. So I think capitalism could be great, should be great. But oh, my goodness, we need to strengthen the guardrails to make sure that it operates in the way it was originally intended. Hmm. And also, oftentimes, the very people who are like, we don't want more government intervention are the very people benefiting from the current government intervention that is helping them. (laughs) Doesn't that drive you crazy? The people who, who talk loudest about, oh, we don't want big government are taking these enormous subsidies to support fossil fuel production. There's this horrible hypocrisy that really, really troubles me. And similarly, People talk about America being the land of the American dream. And don't get me wrong. I mean, it is an amazing country where people can can get ahead. I'm an immigrant myself. And one of the reasons I came to America was there was so much opportunity. But as we're seeing in the data now, for many Americans, the chance that they'll make wages or 
have a life better than their parents is is falling. Their rate of social mobility is dropping. So it's increasingly the best predictor of how well you're going to do in life is how well your parents did. Well, that's not a free market. In a free market, everyone has the chance to compete. And the best way to make sure that's the case is everyone gets decent education and decent health care. That's not an anti-capitalist idea. People talk about, oh, big government. Well, we need education and healthcare. So for me, it's not so much that capitalism is a bad system. It's unconstrained capitalism in which some people get to set the rules in their own favor. That's the problem. I've been thinking about how oftentimes today, things that are made in socially and environmentally responsible ways are often more expensive than things that are made in ways that were exploitative to the people that made the products or were overly exploitative to our natural resources. And I was thinking if things actually reflect their true costs, do you think that the things that are actually more beneficial to our society can actually be more affordable than the things that have higher environmental and social and public health costs? So yes and no. I think sometimes you can run firms in a much better way than many firms are run now. You can treat people with dignity and respect. You can pay them a good wage and that they will become significantly more productive and innovative and excited about their work. And when that happens, you'll get goods that are even better quality than goods produced in exploitative ways. I think that's sometimes true. Mm. But I also think it's sometimes the case that if you're not paying the full social cost, then it's not surprising. It costs less. I mean, if you're going to push wages to the bottom and make people work in unsafe conditions and use power sources that kill millions of people and not have to pay the price for that, it's no surprise it's cheaper. So I think in the world we're moving to towards, because I'm convinced we're going to make this great transition. Mm -hmm. I'm convinced we're going to move to a world where people are treated well and we use clean sources of energy and we respect the earth. In that world, some things will be more expensive, but the world will be cleaner and the society will be much healthier. And the people you are surrounded by will be being paid a living wage and will have maternity care. So I think it will balance out. I think to get tiny bit technical, I think social welfare will be much greater. But might you have to pay a bit more for some things? Yeah, I think you might. And that's the important thing to note is that not everything is accounted for in monetary value, right? So there are a lot of things that matter to us as human beings that aren't necessarily reflected in that number. Well, would you rather live in a society that was more just? You know, sometimes I get a little bit crazy because people say, well, we shouldn't tax the rich more because they worked really hard and so they deserve the money. There's a way in which that's true, right? In that most people who made their own money, they did have to work incredibly hard and most of them were, were very creative. But take someone like Oprah. So I really like Oprah. I think she's amazing. Mm -hmm. And she makes hundreds of millions of dollars a year, right? Well, 
take someone like Oprah 100 years ago, who had all those same talents and all those abilities, and given it was 100 years ago, probably was white, which is another whole story. <laughs> but suppose she was back in that time, she wouldn't be making hundreds of millions of dollars. One of the reasons the rich make so much money is they can take advantage of the modern world. So Oprah has all these amazing distribution channels, she can reach millions of people. And, you know, she can do incredibly well. But it's not like it's all her. Everyone's success is contingent on the success of the society in which they're embedded. This idea that we should only care about ourselves and not care about the fact that some people having to work two jobs and have no spare time and can't spend time with their kids. I mean, I, th I think there are issues of justice and equity and what kind of society we want to live in as well. Right. I was just reading a book by Dr. Christopher Ryan. It's called Civilized to Death. I actually just interviewed him as well, and it was super fascinating. But what he found is that a really high wealth gap within a society isn't good for people at the top either, because for them to exist in a society where they have so much more than other people that they can't connect and can't relate to other people, and that they're sort of isolated and are earning the distrust of people around them, that's not really good for their their health and their livelihood either. I couldn't agree more. I mean, that sounds like a great book and I've, I've written down the title. Do you know, I was recently visiting a Harvard Business School alumnus in Rio de Janeiro, which is an incredibly beautiful city. And this is a man who's who's worked hard and done well for himself. But to visit him, you have to go through two layers of armed guards. Mm. And I mean, what kind of life is it when you have to live your life behind wire fences and behind men with guns? And in this country, we don't do that, but the very rich are still isolated from the rest of us. And I, I, I completely believe that might not be good for their mental health. And we know for sure it's not good for everyone else's mental health. Right? Yeah, <laughs> it's like what we do to punish people is to isolate them and put them in jails. And it's just kind of like a very royal and luxurious form of a jail in that sense of the isolation piece. Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you a story about my recent reunions. So I'm a graduated from Harvard Business School. And I went back for a reunion recently. And I was struck by the fact that not everyone was super happy. Mm. <laughs> I mean, most people who come to reunions have done fine financially. But some of them seemed a little bored, or a little anxious. And they would ask me, like, Rebecca, you seem so happy. You seem so excited. And I'm like, well, I'm out there. I'm doing stuff. And the other people that were really excited were entrepreneurs who were building firms and creating jobs for people. But what am I saying? This is just a very long way of saying, I'm pretty sure that beyond a certain minimum threshold, money doesn't make you happy. It's engagement with the world. It's feeling you're making a difference. It's getting out there and meeting people where they are that that is the source of love and joy and connection. And of course, if you don't have enough to eat or a safe place to stay, you need a decent income. I'm not saying money isn't important, but I think beyond a certain point, it's it's really not necessary. And that's the other thing I'd love to dive deeper with you in a little bit. So th this idea of purpose, right? Businesses having a sense of purpose. And just before we go into that, we were just talking about all of these negative externalities that companies currently aren't internalizing. What do you think it'll take for us to have companies actually account for those social public health and environmental costs? So is it better to do that through businesses self-regulating or through governments stepping in to act as a common mediator? 
I think if we could get governments to step in, democratically accountable, transparent, competent government to step in and set the rules, set the guardrails, that would be by far the best solution. So if you ask me what I think is the most direct path to a better world, I say really a political and social movement which prioritizes economic health and social justice and puts in place the rules that firms have to play by so we get all the benefits and all the innovation and productivity of capitalism, but we we get it within guardrails and we make sure that it doesn't destroy the planet or our societies as it does so. That for me is the number one pathway. The reason I wrote the book I did is that it's not clear to me we're going to get that pathway, that for many reasons, governments across the world are not working very well. It's not just here in the US, it's in my own country of Great Britain, it's in Poland and Hungary and Turkey, and we're even seeing sort of moves towards populism and authoritarianism, even in France and Germany. So I'm really worried that government won't step in in the way we need it to. And so I think business self-regulation, which is a, a wildly unlikely solution. I mean, let, let, let's be quite clear about, oh, business can save the world, just how unlikely that is. <laughs> because after all, we've just spent like 10 minutes talking about how business has been a huge problem and has been corrupting the democracy and just pushing pollutants out there and not treating its work as well. And now I'm going to say, well, business is going to save the world, like ha, ha, ha. But I, I don't think this is as loopy as an idea as it initially sounds. And I, I think the first reason I think it might make sense is more and more companies are turning to purpose and more and more employees want to work for companies that are really purpose-driven. And by purpose-driven, I mean focused on making a real difference in the world, however that works for a particular company, and treating the people that work there with dignity and respect and really taking care of pollution. And I think we're seeing more and more firms like this. It's increasingly clear that they can compete with conventional firms. In some cases, they can do even do better. If we could persuade a significant fraction of the of business to move towards purpose, I think that might help us create an ally in the fight for having the right kind of government and the right kind of regulations. And I'm sure our listeners would very much agree with the sentiment that we hope to see more businesses have a purpose and not just exist for their own profit maximization. And a lot of our frustrations lie in seeing conventional businesses that are continuing their same practices and continuing business as usual. If we're hoping to get these businesses to care more for our humanity, health, and the environment, what are some solid arguments or research findings we can use to appeal to their interests? So I think the good news is there are many arguments you can make. One is, well, I won't work for you <laughs> unless you start behaving in a different way. And I think that's potentially very powerful. A second is, I won't buy from you unless you start behaving in a different way. That's not always possible, but for major purchases, I think we should be more and more paying attention to who we're buying from. I may vote against you. So as a citizen, I can say, you know, no, I, I want you to pay. If you throw pollution into the sea or if you throw greenhouse gases out the window, you should be regulated. You should be charged for that. And I'm going to vote for the politicians who make sure that happens. I think it's also important to realize that 
what I read is an increasingly compelling body of work that running your company with a purpose and treating your employees well is in many cases a better way to make money. I mean, when you look at the literature that links having a purpose to how your employees feel, it's, I think, full of really solid studies that suggest that if a firm has a purpose, employees are likely to have meaning in their work. And that makes you much more excited about your work and much more creative at work. Companies that have a purpose are much more likely to share fundamental values. And that allows you to develop much higher levels of trust. And in organizations that have much higher levels of trust, again, you're much more likely to be productive, much more likely to try new things, much more likely to be creative. I mean, one of the facts that I like to throw around in every industry, the top 10% of firms are twice as productive as the bottom 10% of firms. That is, they take the same inputs and they generate twice the output. That is just mind-blowing. And you're probably thinking, ah, I don't really believe it. Well, I can tell you, I spent 20 years in windowless conference rooms trying to make this result go away. It made my economist colleagues bananas. They were like, no, 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 no. It must be that one firm is using better machines. It must be that one firm is somehow in a different kind of market and they can charge higher prices. It must be that one firm has a different kind of workforce with a different kind of education or different kinds of managers, everything, you name it. So now we have thousands of studies using really carefully collected data, trying to make sure we control for everything and the result won't go away. We know what's driving it. We know that the more productive firms are those that are using better management practices. Well, that's just a long way of saying where people communicate, where the teams work together well, where people are promoted on the basis of merit, not just making their quarterly numbers, but really the people who contribute more get promoted faster, where people have a shared sense of what the firm is trying to accomplish. I mean, I think the data around that is really compelling. So when I'm working with firms, I try many arguments. I mean, I try the nobody will work for you, consumers won't buy from you, but you'll get much more innovation and, and creativity. And I, I think being really clear about how all those arguments work together, that that's pretty compelling. And then I, I have one last argument, which is it's pretty clear that if we keep doing business as usual, really things are not going to go terribly well. Mm. You can see massive social unrest. You can see an acceleration in climate change's effect. I'm sure your listeners know this, but what we saw in California and Australia is not the new normal. It's just the next step on the road to where we're going. And where we're going, unless we change, is really a bad place. And I say, this is not good for business. Right. <laughs> it just isn't good for business. And if you want a prosperous and healthy economy, you know, help out, get in line, make a difference. How do you think we can deal with the inequalities that have stemmed from this current market system, as in people that are financially strapped, they may not have the choice of working for a company that they truly believe in. They may have to take a minimum wage job wherever they can get it. And then because these same companies may be doing the pollution in these marginalized communities or they're paying the minimum wage, which is preventing people from having the financial resources to pay for more socially responsibly made things, it kind of keeps the people at the bottom trapped in a place where they are also continuing to perpetuate the system that they're trying to get out of. 
Does that make any sense? Oh, it makes total sense. And as you lay it out that way, I think it's really important to be aware of we're in a very tough place. So how do we get out of it? Again, my go-to lever is government action. I think we should have much stronger minimum wage laws. I think we should think very carefully about the size of many large firms and make sure that there's real competition for for workers, right? If, as you say, I really can only work for one or two firms, they're going to set my wage rates. And so we've got to think about how the increasing concentration of business in America and the increasing size of many large firms has in effect driven down wages. I think we need to talk about worker representation. I'm not going to use the U word because I know it makes everybody jumpy. <laughs> but when you look at the data, one of the things that's super clear is wages are higher when employees can get together and negotiate with employers in a group, whether that's in a works council in Germany, whether that's in industry level bargaining, as you see in Denmark. But, you know, if a few firms are setting wages and workers have no legal protection, no way to to get together to sort of represent their own interests, no minimum wage legislation, no legislation that controls like the crazy scheduling that so many workers are having to deal with, that doesn't make any sense. And the reason I think this is possible is you can look at companies like Germany and Denmark, and they are absolutely not perfect. There are definitely issues, but they have much lower levels of inequality, much higher rates of labor force participation. Many more people are participating in the workforce. And in some cases, higher rates of small firm startup. And that's a whole range of things. It's having a healthcare system that nobody is afraid of losing their healthcare if they lose their job. It's having an educational system that everyone gets a decent education, no matter where they're born. I mean, this this is not socialism. This is not crazy. We we know what this looks like and we can definitely afford it. So let's do it. Right. And the other question is, I feel like people who are very wary of the idea of relying on purpose-driven businesses to address our varied ecological and social crises, they might ask, how can businesses, specifically ones that sell products, help to address our collective overconsumption and overexploitation of resources when their ability to do good hinge upon their abilities to sell more consumption? So what would you say to that? Oh, God, that is the question of consumption is super tough. So I think over time, we'll see a migration to all of us consuming much less. And what I think we'll see instead is space and time to take care of each other. It's not about producing more and more stuff. Even the companies that are really good at producing more and more stuff are like, this is not working in the long term. What we need are places that people can come and hang out and spend time together. So let let me pick an unpopular example, okay? Let me talk about Walmart. Lots of people don't think much of Walmart, <laughs> very kind of controversial firm. And the way I think about it is Walmart sort of exemplified 20th century capitalism on speed. So we told firms, cut the wages, strip mine the planet, get us lots of cheap stuff. And Walmart was like, oh, okay, I can do that. And they did that. And they built the largest firm in the world. And it had all kinds of negative effects, Right. But then because they were so big, precisely because they were so big, they got to the edge of that and they went, oh, problems. How do we deal with that? 
And so now you see Walmart, even Walmart moving towards like, can we do healthcare in our store that's really tuned to people's needs? Can we have places in our store that people can spend time together? Can we pay everybody more and raise the wages in the whole retail sector? Really trying to find a different way through. So I guess I'm saying I absolutely wouldn't rely on purpose-driven firms to solve this problem, but I do think there's a way through it. And can I come back to something you said earlier? Yeah, go for it. Which was uh, people are a bit nervous about relying on purpose-driven firms to solve our problems. I want to be quite clear. I'm nervous about relying on purpose-driven firms to solve our problems. I don't think they can do it. What I think they can do is make a local difference. They can demonstrate there's a better way of doing doing business, one that's much less environmentally destructive and, and much better for society. So they can show that there's a way of doing business like that. But we won't shift our whole system without having government action. So I think one of the most important things purpose-driven firms can do is say, look, we need to change the rules and go to the local state legislator and say, we need minimum wage legislation. So when I pay more, the guys across the street who are not purpose-driven can't undercut me and put me out of business. I want a carbon price. So when I put in renewable energy, I won't be at a competitive disadvantage. I want a voice for labor so that those of my competitors that are pitting workers against each other and driving wages down can't outcompete me. So when I think about what purpose-driven firms can do, I think showing there's a different way, that firms can be different, I think that's really important because otherwise people will go, oh, we can't save the planet or save our society. We'll just go bankrupt. We won't have anything to eat. I think that's clearly crazy. And purpose-driven firms can demonstrate we can have a really strong economic system and be environmentally and socially responsible. But the other thing they can do is sort of help lead the charge for, we could organize this differently and we could support firms that are doing the right thing and make sure that firms that are doing the wrong thing, like flooding politics with money to deny global warming is real or to keep the minimum wage low, like, let's let's reform the system so that they can't do that. So my, my vision, and yes, it's a little utopian, is that purpose-driven firms could be an important sector of the business establishment saying, look, we need to improve the whole system, that purpose-driven firms could be improving the whole system. And that would be super important. I feel like right now, a lot of what's been skewing the playing field in politics is these powerful corporate interests. So I guess the bright side to getting businesses to adopt a sense of purpose in what they do and to care more for our societal welfare is that they may start to also vote for systemic changes that can lead to greater equality. Rather than upkeeping the system that continues to benefit them and continues to widen our income inequalities and social injustices, they will also see the benefits in them being a contributor and being an active participant in co-creating this better world for us all. That's a great summary. I'm hoping that purpose-driven firms will see that they and everyone will be better off if we have a better world. And something as simple as, as really saying, 
it's not okay to give enormous amounts of money that pull politicians away from listening to their constituents. I mean, really building a strong democracy is in the interests of business in the long term. I think having a group of businesses that were saying that, that were moving away from what I think is really poisonous rhetoric around government is bad, we don't need big government. Sometimes you need government to make the free market as as good as it could be. And I think having a group of firms saying that might make an important difference. And finally, to wrap up for our listener, whether they work for a company that they wish to see become more purpose-driven or they're an active consumer wanting to support these changes in the business world, what are some concrete action steps you'd recommend they take to have the biggest impact? So I always start with politics. I think you can be on the left or the right, but making sure that the corporations aren't controlling the democratic process is huge. And so I would reach out to local political organizations that are working to make sure that it's our politics is really about the voters is key. And part of that is moving beyond this horrible partisan rhetoric, like really focusing on the common good for all of us and, and trying to, to build a democracy that works for all of us. I think thinking about what you buy, thinking about who you work for is super important. I think wherever you work, looking around and seeing if becoming more environmentally sustainable or treating people better might be a great way of making money. I've seen businesses in all kinds of industries do better because they started looking for new opportunities. It's so easy to think that being more environmentally sustainable or treating people better is always more expensive. But in my experience, that's often not the case. And we focus on these big CEOs who make the splashy announcements about how they're making their company green. But I can tell you, almost all of those big CEOs got their initial ideas from people on the ground looking around and saying, you know, we could switch to electric delivery vehicles or we could get rid of the waste from this process. Or if we paid people more and treated them with more dignity, I bet we'd get better quality products at the end or better quality services. So I'm not saying any individual can change the world. There are billions and billions of people on the planet. And I know that in the end, all of us are just grains of dust in the wind. But I also think we're super important grains of dust. You know, the metaphor I use is I think about the fact that we need an avalanche. If we're going to change the whole system, we need massive systemic change. We need everything to shift. Well, what starts avalanches? Single pebbles start avalanches. And I think we can all be a pebble, a pebble in the avalanche of change. Sounds kind of hokey, but everything we know about social change, that's how it happens. What's an uplifting social media account or a publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you? This is going to sound crazy, <laughs> but the book that's really making a difference for me now is a book of Chinese poetry translated by Arthur Whaley. Mm. 
it's just an amazing book. And I find that doing this work, sometimes it's easy to fall into despair. And reading thousand-year-old poetry, reflections on the beauty of the natural world, reflections on the fleeting nature of life, really helps orient me to the fact that even though I know rationally that anything any one of us can do is not going to make a difference, what we do is the most important thing in the world. And, and just reading poetry overnight really helps ground me in that reality. What do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired? So I'm a Buddhist, and I often say that as a Buddhist, I have good news and bad news. The good news is we're not going to die. The bad news is that's because we don't really exist. And I think of ourselves as songs the universe is singing, energy patterns that come together and then dissipate. And I remind myself that's what I am. I'm an integral part of the universe. I'm a song. And so not to get too worried. You know, I'm going to be part of the universe forever. I'm doing the best I can. And I remember just the sheer overwhelming beauty of the world. I remind myself of what it means to look up at the sky and see the stars or really look at a tree or a flower. And, you know, that, that does it for me. What is one thing you're working on right now for your health? More meditation. I need to meditate more. <laughs> I've got myself to like 15 minutes a day. That's fantastic. But I know I should get to like double that. I'm pretty good on exercise and I'm pretty good on food, but I tend to get myself all revved up and just drive myself to exhaustion. And so for me, it's more meditation. That's what I need. What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? Well, I'm launching a book. <laughs> that's that's kind of my thing at the moment. I've, I've been thinking about these issues for 15 years. I've been teaching reimagining capitalism for nearly 10. I've tried to put everything that I've learned and many of the amazing people I've met who are really making a difference in the world. You know, we can talk about this in general, but what's really happening firm by firm is incredible. And so I've tried to put that into the book and I, I hope it might be helpful to to a few people. And finally, what makes you most hopeful for our planet and world at the moment? When I first started doing this work, when I first started teaching a course in sustainability, it was quite clear my colleagues thought I had lost my mind. This year, people no longer think I've lost my mind. People are coming to me and saying, Rebecca, oh, you were right. These are the most important issues we face and we have to do something about them. And so I think we're really in the midst of a profound understanding that we have to change. That's only step one. Then we have to actually do the change. But understanding that, yes, there really is an issue and we really need to do something about it. That is amazing. And to see that from people who never thought about these issues, never cared about these issues, that makes me very help hopeful. Green Dreamer, if you want to learn more and stay updated on Rebecca's work, you can head to www.rebeccahenderson.com and be sure to check out her new book, Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire at publicaffairsbooks.com. Do you know where your book will be in bookstores and online? 
So my book's available anywhere online. You can pre-order it wherever great books are sold. And I'm hoping it will be in a bookstore near you. Perfect. And yeah, you can also follow her on Twitter at Rebecca, R-E-C-A-P. Rebecca, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. And thank you so much for sharing your expertise with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? Part of us hopes we can fix things all at once and that it won't take fight and effort and difficulty. But that's what it takes to change the world. And it's a profound source of joy and energy to actually get down in the weeds of driving change and make it happen. So it's never beautiful. It's never perfect. But life is what it is. It's simultaneously amazing and simultaneously hard. And if you can dance in the middle of that, that's for me where, where the joy is. Look.